knowing what you know now, after playing four years of college football, uh, whatever many years in high school, would you let your kid play? I think I would, but I'll caveat that with see how they're being coached. Uh, in the southern states, uh, the coaching is different, and coaching matters. How do you hit people? How do you tackle? How do you use your head? How do you use your shoulders? I mean, there's a lot of techniques that I know for a fact, and I saw when I went to college, those of us who came from the South had ingrained in us in, at 13 and 14 that kids coming from the North don't. The coaching is different. This is the Fred Opie Show, where we share lacrosse stories and life lessons from coaches, players, parents, and experts. I'm your host, Fred Opie, a former Syracuse University and U.S. national team player. It's football season. Some of the top college lacrosse coaches that I have spoken on this show have talked about how much they love to recruit multi-sport athletes. Fred speaks with Hyatt Gibson, who played collegiate football at the United States Military Academy at West Point. A native of Texas, he is a husband, father, and active duty colonel in the United States Army, who is currently serving as an assistant professor of systems engineering at West Point. Before that, he served as the battalion commander of the 3rd General Support Aviation Battalion 82nd Airborne, in which he was in charge of over 600 team members. He talks about what it was like growing up playing football in Texas and how he put himself in position to become a top prospect. He also speaks about why some of the most talented players in his hometown did not have the opportunity to play college football. This and more today on the Fred Opie Show. Uh, I grew up in uh, Lufkin, Texas, a small town in East Texas, north of Houston, approximately 35,000 people. Football was free, started at eighth grade. The other sports before that had to be paid. My parents weren't paying for me to play sports. Uh, when I transitioned from junior high to high school was when I changed from being an offensive lineman to a linebacker, which is unusual because normally, again, like uh, many schools, these positions are groomed over time. And so uh, I wanted to get my name in the paper like the super linebackers that I saw growing up on Friday nights. Uh, and I was good enough in high school to where folks started to recruit me. I also had a very good high school football coach who made it his mission in life to where if his athletes had good enough grades, he would find them a school that would pay for them to go to college. So he made it that his mission, a guy named uh, Coach Pat Culpepper, who actually I still talk to, stays in touch with a lot of his old players. As a high school athlete, I was a terrible student. I had ADHD. School was hard for me, and because it was hard for me and I was immature, I didn't put a whole lot of time in it. I got frustrated, and I probably excelled in sports because it was the place where I got my ego scratched. So I And my parents did not monitor my academics. So my mother would ask me, did you do your homework? And I'd say, yeah, just like my son would say, yeah. But unlike my parents, I checked. My parents didn't check. And they didn't know. Either my parents went to college. They just did not know. My father was working so much overtime that he really wasn't around to check. And my mother just was not wise enough to know. You can't believe the stuff that comes out of your, your kid's mouth. Your child is going to take the road of least resistance. And if you don't check, you need to inspect what you expect. In your case, you ended up being a person who could qualify to get to West Point, that was a fantasy for me. What was the difference with you? Why were you such a good student? I was told at an early age that I was good in school. That's where my ego got true. The goal 
overall was to go to school for free, however uh, I could do that. Uh, and for me, I remember in the 10th grade in the summertime, walking by the counselor's office after working out, because we did in Texas, I'd work during the day and then go lift weights in the evening. That was very normal uh, when I, where I grew up. Uh, in the counselor's office, there was a, um, a postcard that said United States Military Academy. I didn't know what West Point was, never heard of it. There was a consistent theme in my high school because there was a Naval Academy graduate who lived in town. And my old uh, congressman, a guy named Charlie Wilson, was a Naval Academy graduate. So we always had kids go to Navy. And every once in a while, we would have guys go to Air Force. We'd never have anyone who would go to West Point. So in the 10th grade, I saw this postcard, mailed it off, got something back. And at that point, decided I was going to go to go to West Point. Didn't know what it was, didn't know where it was. But that, that kind of stuck in my head. There are a lot of kids who are good students until they get to middle school and they start hitting puberty. It becomes, it's not cool to do well in school. I mean, you've heard that. Oh yeah. Were you the abnormal for a boy to take school serious in some ways sound like it was just as important to you as sports? Were you abnormal? In some respects, yes. Uh, Only because I actually, I enjoyed going to school. I was a very active student. I enjoyed engaging with my teachers. I wasn't, at an early age, I was not worried about being cool. Where some peer pressure to do something else, those guys who were cool, arrogant as this, as this will sound, <laughs> um, I, I felt that if I was good in school, at, at one point they will be working for me. That caused me to focus on school because getting an education will open up more doors than just trying to do what everyone else did. So I think that's just a, a function of personality than anything else. I saw the story of Randy Moss. Randy Moss, yeah. If you haven't seen this, 30 for 30 and Randy Moss, if you're listening to this, you need to check it out. And it's called Rand University because he grew up in Rand, West, mm-hmm. West Virginia. The reason why I'm bringing this up, because I remember the scenes in that documentary about his hometown of the number of the I wish I should have, could have yeah. sitting on the street. Yep. You know, the brothers who were, had all the records for basketball, football, baseball, but Randy made it out. Yep. The rest of these cats, they just didn't make it out. Did you see similar things like that? You know, yeah. the guys who were just phenomenal, but they just never made it out of your hometown. Absolutely. I mean, I remember there was a guy named Eric Curl. He was a running back. Phenomenal uh, talent. And so this is the mid-80s, mid-late 80s, so when I was in middle school. Uh, and this guy was so good, and this is no, no joke. I remember being in the ninth grade. And coaches from Miami showing up in my town, and the coach is trying to find this kid. University of Miami. University of Miami is just showing up to try to find this kid and his talent in the late 80s. Another guy we had was a guy named, uh, but his nickname was Moon Man because his head was so big. Was like a moon. <laughs> but he was a linebacker, and he was, he was a violent, vicious talent. Talented physically, mentally for the game. But when he graduated, went off to junior college, and had too much fun. Like many kids, I mean, you leave home for the first time, you were by yourself, you with the wrong crowd, you end up back at home. And so uh, in, in my town, I saw a lot of that growing up. Mm. A lot of great athletes that I remember watching on Friday nights who didn't do anything. In those cases, what do you think the difference was if you have any insight on it? There's many attributes that, that contribute to whether someone decides to take one path versus another. Unfortunately, and what I observed growing up was home life was a part of it, part of it, 
But the largest part is personal decision to get wrapped up with the with the wrong crowd. You can define that wrong crowd by a huge swath. The wrong crowd coupled with a, a large consumption of, of just pure arrogance that you know you're invincible and unfortunately the home life portion either a parents just don't know parents don't go to college parents just happy you're going to school but not really understanding what needs to happen next so, so a lot of that now what about your coach if you weren't doing the right thing he would bench you but he would he would bench you if, if you were not operating within his uh left and right limits you know there are kids who are you say talents and they're coaches who do not discipline them because they're scoring touchdowns they're making tackles they're doing everything they need for the team to win and so the other stuff is overlooked think in the long run you're hurting the kid time to sit down and discipline them and let them know school is important how you conduct yourself is important and, and i'd say to coaches out there you need to quit your job i'll be straight you need to quit your job if you can't be more than just X's and O's. These kids, they need people who will show them right from wrong because at that early stage, they don't know right from wrong. And and some of them don't have the examples of in their own house. So I think it's really important, you know, that you do that. I'm assuming that in your situation and circumstances, peer pressure didn't have the same effect because you were big, also because you didn't take no mess. Well, I don't think it had to do with uh, size. It just had to do with mindset. A lot, a lot of folks were driven purely by sports. I was driven by school and and then by sports. So sports wasn't first. It just took up a lot of time and it gave focus for other things. I didn't allow other things to consume me. But being in sports, that kind of drives your your calendar for the year. It and in Texas, by that time, you had no passion to play. So if you didn't pass, you couldn't play anyway. So you had to keep your grades up. It was kind of a requirement. Uh, and then being part of active student life, well, that helps you get into college. Because that's, you know, when we started thinking about college resumes in the, in the early 90s, I was very deliberate about what I was doing and how I did it uh, in order to get to the ultimate goal of going to school for free. I'm the youngest in my family, youngest of three, but I was the first one to graduate from college. My parents, they had no clue. I had to figure out the process along the way. Uh, I, I went to a junior college. That was part of me understanding the process. Because I figured I'm, you know, all star, all county. Mm. Boom, you know, I'm getting to college until all these letters come back and say, "No, thank you." <laughs> you know, it was that was like a wake up call. Why weren't you as dumb as I was? <laughs> Let's just put it out there like that. Why were you wiser about this whole process? And my great grandfather, who died at 102, went to college in 1926. I think the fact that everyone, and at least in my immediate family, had the opportunity to go to school, which is unusual. Now, whether they did anything with that opportunity, that's a completely different story for a different day. There were role models of folks going to college. I remember my mother being in college. My mom had me when she was 16. I remember going to visit her in her college dorm room. Wow. When I was four and five. Not going to college wasn't an option. Trying to figure out how to go for free. And also had cousins who got uh, academic scholarships, like the Texas A&M, University of Texas, University of Houston. Having those role models of folks going off, leaving Lufkin, going to school, doing well academically was, uh, was kind of ingrained in my head. What helped me choose the school was, uh, one thing that caused service academies to be high on the list was, I could go to a service academy, decide the day I get there I could quit football 
and still be there. It's a completely different thing than than when I realized that you know you go on a football scholarship. Well, that's renewed every year. What do you do your visits? I went to Navy, Army, Oklahoma State. I was recruited by Baylor, and I was recruited by Tulane. So if you had went to one of those, explain to the audience, if you had went to one of those, your scholarship would have been renewed annually. So every year, your scholarship is reviewed and renewed. Versus the service academy, well, everyone's on scholarship. And so I could go there, get hurt, decide, you know what, football is not for me, and I'm still in the school. And at the end of the day, when I leave a service academy, at least it was it was a frame to me at 18, going to a service academy, at the end of that, when I graduate, it's a guaranteed job. So, yes, you're going in the military, the Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, or Army, but it was parlayed in 1992 as a guaranteed job, which as, at 17, that makes sense. You can, you can compartmentalize that. Okay, guaranteed job, you're going to be in charge of people, you're going to do some things, you're going to serve, okay, and then you're going to leave after five years and go back out in the world. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com. I'm going to share a clip that we did with former University of Virginia head lacrosse coach Dom Stargell who played collegiate football at Brown University. And he talks about his experience of playing football and how he was introduced to playing lacrosse as a football athlete. Never played lacrosse in in high school, grew up on Long Island, but when he got to Brown, he was introduced to lacrosse and fell in love with it. So he continued to do two sports while he was in college. I grew up playing football, basketball, and baseball and got recruited to college. I went to Brown University. I got recruited to play football in college. And in the days when you had to play on freshman teams your first year, and um, I happened to be the captain of the freshman football team that year, and a buddy on the football team played lacrosse. And, and he asked me to uh, uh, to come out for it. Yeah, I had never seen it. I'd heard of it. I was curious. So I went out for lacrosse as a freshman at Brown, and uh, that would have been the spring of uh, 71. I just literally fell in love with the game immediately. and. Uh, you know, it's funny, sometimes I uh, picked up a stick for the first time and you just feel like, boy, this just feels right. Uh, I was a history major. Uh, I loved the whole Native American piece of the game and uh, just fascinated with every part of it. You know, plus started playing with a wood stick my first two years. You know, I loved that. And, and actually a buddy on the lacrosse team at Brown, who remains one of my closest friends, uh, was from uh, the St. Regis Indian Reservation in upstate New York. He was a Mohawk and uh, you know, a guy by the name of David White. And... Uh, and so, like I say, there were just lots of pieces of it that just fell in place for me. And, and, uh, and that's, again, that's, that's how it started. You can find this interview and others in our podcast archive. Just go to fredopi.com and look for the link to the podcast. Back to our interview with Ice Gibson. Is it true that you guys get paid while you're in school? Or is that just, Absolutely. Are you at liberty to say about what a cadet makes per month? In 1993... Freshman got seventy-five bucks a month. A sophomore, one hundred twenty-five. A junior, two fifty, and a senior, like three hundred. Now it's like three times that much today, and so every cadet is paid. So because you're actually in the Department of Defense, 
they get paid, for instance, like a uh, a private in their army. Each cadet makes about that much, but most of that money that they're getting paid is going towards uniforms, books, is going towards uh, all those things, and then they give you a portion in your pocket, and then they put a portion away for other things. And so the education at a surge academy is anywhere between uh, 250 to half a million bucks per wow. cadet. Knowing what you know now, after playing four years of college football, uh, whatever many years in high school, would you let your kid play? I think I would, but I'll caveat that would see how they're being coached. Uh, in the southern states, uh, the coaching is different, and coaching matters. How do you hit people? How do you tackle? How do you use your head? How do you use your shoulders? I mean, there's a lot of techniques that I know for a fact, and I saw when I went to college, those of us who came from the south, had ingrained in us in, at 13 and 14 that kids coming from the north don't. The coaching is different. For example, just in how you tackle. Folks, you're going to get a concussion or neck and shoulder injuries just by not knowing how to use your shoulders and not where to place your head properly when you're about to hit somebody. That matters. Or, or what? how do you use leverage? How do you squat and then thrust through? So you don't, not only do you not hurt yourself, you don't hurt the other person either. So typically when you see kids grow up in the North, when you, when you would see them at the academy, you could almost during preseason practice tell. You, you draw a parallel. Wow. Except for certain places. When you think about Pennsylvania and Ohio. I mean, there's certain places that are legitimately football factories. And usually these kids are coming from very large Catholic high schools where football is king, and they have large staffs, similar to what we would have in the South. There's a difference. Okay. He's not coming from a football factory school or, or, one of the, or like a Jesuit high school where all male kids are on scholarship and you know, they're, they're sending kids off to big high-polluting Big Ten schools. Is play, letting the kids play Pop Warner, is that helpful in developing technique early on, or uh, is it more dangerous? Uh, Personally, I'm. Not, did you play that? Bro? No, I didn't. I didn't play football until I was in the eighth grade. Why? Because uh, it costs money to play. Personally, I don't think so. <laughs> that's just that's just me. I have a lot of friends who grew up playing at starting at seven. I don't. I don't think you're strong enough or developed enough, and the variance in sizes is so different. Mm -hmm. An example: uh, I went to a, a Pop Warner contact football game in North Carolina. Ages twelve to fourteen. I mean, I saw a 14-year-old that looked like a 12-year-old and a 12-year-old looked like a 16-year-old. And just the variance in sizes is so great. And the kids don't really know how to use their strength. They don't have enough strength yet. They can't keep people off of them. They don't, don't know how to fall. I think having kids start around 13 or 14 in high school with proper coaches is about the right time because you can physically deal with the collisions that, that could happen versus – uh, what I've, you know, kids getting ankle injuries at like 10 or knee injuries at 11. Just because they don't know how to, they don't know where to step, how to be, how to move. In the late 80s, 90s, we didn't play year round. So we would play football from August to November, and then you go into off season. Yeah. Off season, you're strength training, cardio training. I mean, you're, you're lifting and stuff, running in preparation for spring football in May. And then after that, at least in the state of Texas, coaches can't touch you until August. Okay. 
So you're, you're lifting, but that's all on your own. Mm-hmm. They can't physically do anything with you. Mm-hmm. That's changed now because we have uh, things like seven on seven with your skill position playing, but that's, that's like quarterbacks and receivers and DBs, defensive backs. But there's a whole league that does that in Texas now. What kind of transition did you have from high school to college? At the academies, they don't redshirt. Well, I pl- I went to prep school for a year first, so I played football at, at a prep school for a year. And then back when I was at the academy, we were a junior-senior team, meaning you didn't really play until you were a junior-senior. And so everyone else was on the scout team or – and you played JV, junior varsity. But we were a junior-senior team. And so you had time to develop and grow and learn the system, get stronger in preparation to play Division One football. But for me – like most kids from Texas or from the South, it wasn't a huge transition from high school to college because we had actually, my workouts were just as tough in high school as they were in college. You know, I'm struggling with that decision right now with a son who wants to play football. I think I've ever said this on the air, mm-hmm. but I think it's important people understand. In my case, I had an uncle who died in a football head accident, head, in a head injury as a freshman in, in high school. So that influences my decision. My message isn't to tell everybody what to do. My message is that everybody have a deep dive and think about it. Well, I like football uh, because it puts, especially boys, in a situation where you have nowhere to run. I mean, it's, it's one of those moments where it's you and another person and one of you will lose. <laughs> and you ha- And you have to be, and so there's, you know, there's like the rite of passage that is, that is you know, uh, eons long that being on a football field and drills and training and building, working together as a team and having to deal with a collision and having to work through playing with pain and having to, you might not like the person while you're in school, but you, your teammates on the field uh, and the direct contact. And I'm a pretty mild-mannered individual. And I've always been that way. But on a football field, is a is a different switch that's required. Uh, probably, which is why probably why I'm a helicopter pilot. It's a different <laughs> switch that's required to do these things. And playing football and having good coaches builds a level of resilience and grit that other contact sports build as well. I mean, it's just the contact is so violent in football that it's just different. When you get hit, what are you going to do? You can either fold. Or decide you're going to come back and hit somebody harder and not get beat again. Now you finished a PhD at uh, Harvard Business School, and you did it in five years. Uh, three years. Three years, folks. That's insane. Me, Doctor Opie, I took almost nine to ten years, and this guy did it three. I I don't know how he did that. I, I still find that amazing. It's the fact that he's still active duty military as an officer, and he had a certain amount of time that was given for him to do it. So he had to do it. In what ways do you see what the athletic uh, training and conditioning and mindset, in what ways have you seen that uh, help you and aid you in your graduate school or as a leader of a platoon right now? Is that- uh, a battalion. Battalion. How many, how many men are in a battalion? Uh, in mine, 650. 650 people. In what ways do you see the training prepare you? Operate in an environment where something bigger than yourself 
the ability to bring people together, focus on a common goal, which is required when you play team sports, uh, and also ability to be resilient. For instance, you know, in, in sports you lose or you win. Or on a play, you get beat. So as a linebacker, you miss a tackle. Or as a defensive lineman, you get put on your back. Well, you can either A, get put on your back again, <laughs> or you can get up and say, you know, I'm going to come at it harder. So all of those experiences directly translate to operating in an intense academic environment where doctoral program is, a, is for most, very isolating. For me, leverage my ability to build a team. My team was my committee or my team were my cohort mates or other folks who I could leverage to help me better understand something that I didn't know in order to move, progress my research further. So all that, all things that I learned starting in eighth grade came, came into play operating in a doctoral program. Same thing in leading a large group. How do you give people uh, direction, uh, give left and right limits, uh, create a playbook, so to speak, as a coach. So as a battalion commander of 650 folks, I'm more of a coach than a player. So being able to, to deploy the right players in the right place at the right time to get something done. There were guys that you could tell they were football coaches first. They mm. were kind of in your face. Mm. Uh, then there's the Tony Dungy type of coaches who would tend to be soft-spoken and working on developing good habits. Mm. What kind of coach are you? More, I'd say more Tony Dungy like because I don't. I, I responded fine to being yelled at as a player, but that's just probably a personality thing. I, instead of being upset with um, negative criticism or feedback, it was a motive. It was motivation for me. But I acknowledge that most people don't operate that way, especially today. I, I have mostly millennials in my battalion, so uh, engaging with millennials is significantly different than engaging with folks around my age or folks around your age. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like night and day. And so we have to adapt in order to get the same results. And so I've had to adapt how I approach people and how I give guidance uh, in a much softer way uh, because yelling doesn't work. It, it, it just doesn't. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. This show could have been brought to you by your company. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. If you're interested as an audio mixer or in sales and marketing, send us a note with the subject header, Fred is Hiring, F-D-O-P-I-E at gmail.com Start with a gift. Learn how to understand your gift, monetize it, and serve others with it. I wrote it for the younger version of me who I describe as having sports on the brain and lots of pain. It'll be available online at fredopi.com